Well, hello, good afternoon, and welcome to all of you to this masterpiece in conversation about the life and work of the photographer, filmmaker, painter, graphic artist, William Klein. My name is Edward Dimsdale. I'm a photographic artist, a writer on photography and culture, and professor of um, um, creative practice at the Cambridge School of Visual and Performing Arts. And it's my very happy role uh, this afternoon to introduce two experts in their respective fields and to help moderate a conversation which aims to provide some insights into the scope of William Klein's career, primarily focusing on uh, his pioneering approaches to photography and image making, uh, whilst also touching on some other significant aspects. To my far left is David Hopkins, Emeritus Professor of Art History and Professorial Research Fellow at the University of Glasgow. Uh, David has lectured internationally and published numerous books on subjects such as Dada, Surrealism, Marcel Duchamp, Max Ernst and 1980s art. His study of post-1945 art and photography, After Modern Art, 1945 to 2017, is now in its second edition and is actually one of the set texts that I can well remember assigning to fine art students uh, in the past. Uh, his most recent publication is Dark Toys, Surrealism and the Culture of Childhood, published by Yale University Press in 2021. And photography has often been at the very centre of his research. And he's also curated an exhibition on Ouija and written on topics ranging from Man Ray to Douglas Gordon. And he's currently working on a study of 20th century photography. And to my immediate left is Marcus Berry, who co-founded Hackleberry Fine Art here in London in 1997. Marcus works closely with artists on their exhibitions, publications and museum projects, and with clients on shaping their collections. Marcus has been working closely with William Klein for over 20 years, promoting his work and raising his profile. It was Marcus who introduced William's work to international curators and institutions, including David Campany, who's the lead curator for the major retrospective William Klein, yes, photographs, paintings, films, 1948-2013, uh, currently on at the ICP, the International Centre for Photography in New York, which opened in June of this year and continues through until September. Hackleberry uh, was integral to in restoring and supplying works to the William Klein Dido Moriyama exhibition at Tate Modern in 2012-13. And the gallery also arranged a William Klein film festival with the Lycée Francais in London, as well as the in conversation between William and David Campany for Photo London at the National Portrait Gallery in London in 2017. Hackleberry have exhibited William's work many times and published the William Klein books, paintings, etc., and black and light. Gentlemen, welcome. By way of a general introduction, I suppose, William is perhaps best known for his fashion photography and his distinctive gritty style of street photography. Next slide, please. Together with his decidedly unconventional approach to subject matter. We are wanting to consider as many aspects of his career as we can in the time available, including his early training as a painter, as well as his work as a filmmaker, all set against the wider context of art, historical and cultural developments throughout his long career. We also hope to explore the relationship between artist and gallery. Some of these opening images that you're just seeing on the screen at the moment primarily come from two sources. William's painted contact series, there's the 
book here for anyone wanting to have a look at it uh, at the conclusion of this talk. Um, and also, um, and we'll return to these uh, towards the end of the talk as well to kind of discuss them further, uh, as well as documentation images from the 2012-2013 Tate Modern Retrospective. But before we get into the conversation itself, I thought we might begin with some of William's own words. I came from the outside. The rules of photography didn't interest me. There were things you could do with a camera that you couldn't do with any other medium. Grain, contrast, blur, cockeyed framing, eliminating or exaggerating grey tones and, and so on. I thought it would be good to show what's possible. To say that this is as valid a way of using the camera as conventional approaches. So perhaps this notion of coming from the outside and refusing to take the conventional route in almost any and every circumstance, these are two key attributes that would appear to be characteristic of both his work as well as of the man himself. And I suppose, Marcus, just coming to you first, for those perhaps f familiar with the work but less familiar with the man himself, could you perhaps shed some light on some of the more unconventional aspects of William's personality? I mean, what's he like to work with? William, <clears throat> William doesn't like to be tied down, and so he doesn't... He works with a lot of different galleries, and he assigns different galleries different tasks. So the, the task he set me was, you know, if you want an exhibition, get me a film... <clears throat> get me a film festival and a museum show. So, you know, it took 10 years. <laughs> you know, and that we got the Elise and the Tate Modern, and then he was happy to do, you know, have an, a full exhibition of his work. He's often included in, in group exhibitions, but he's very particular about his single-person exhibitions. I think, uh, you know, I'm wary of asking the question, and now could you tell us some of the story? Well, maybe we'll come back to some of the anecdotes later on. We could be spending the entirety of this just kind of hearing about some of these stories. We'll get back to those. Uh, but thank you. I think it gives some indication that kind of the personality of the artist can be seen absolutely kind of in the works as well, and it's kind of useful uh, to hear that. Um, Born in Upper Manhattan in 1928 and still kind of with us, still kind of lively, um, schooled in New York, Klein joined the US Army and spent two years in occupied Europe, uh, arriving there in 1948. And as part of the GI Bill at the time, the Army then provided cultural opportunities for, uh, for, for US Army um, serving in Europe. And perhaps, David, you could pick up the story now, as this is very much an example of what William was referring to when describing himself as coming from the outside. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's very interesting to see, think of William Klein as a, as a painter, because, you know, we, we normally think of him as a, as a photographer. So, you know, it's one of the interesting things we have to think about today and to think about how aspects of his painting might eventually feed into his photography. Um, and that's something we can come on to. Um, but what we're looking at here is a, a painting, I think it was about 1948 or 49, um, of uh, kind of, it's kind of still life, if you like, with a potato masher. So a slightly peculiar subject for a still life painting. But I, I guess showing his interest in, um, you know, kind of um, gadgets and technology, if you want to, you know, in a broader sense. 
Um, interesting here, the kind of very, very uh, pronounced kind of pattern, um, the flattening out of the forms in the painting. These things suggest that he was very well aware of the avant-garde. And uh, I think this is one of the main points to make uh, at the very beginning here, which is that we know that even after he was, uh, you know, as a, as a kind of teenager, he visited the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So he had this fantastic collection of, of modernism to, to, to look at. And uh, you can, he clearly absorbed it really very quickly in a way. Uh, when he got to Paris, uh, when, when, um, sorry, um, when he got to the States, um, he um, manifests, I think, the influence of people like Leger and uh, Fernand Leger, um, possibly somebody like Miro. I mean, here you, know, you can see Miro sort of flattening out the, the, the shapes, particularly of the... Um, uh, well, all the objects here, to some extent, are, are kind of flattened out on the picture surface. Something of that uh, is there in um, uh, William's work. Um, here you can see the kind of patterning, surface patterning that I mentioned earlier uh, in relation to his painting. Um, and I think also Leger's, this is a Leger painting, and uh, Leger's influence, uh, interest in kind of uh, mechanised bodies and things like that, I think is, is something which um, William Klein also... Uh, took up in his paintings at this time. I mean, not illustrated here, but Leger also yeah. as a filmmaker creating Ballet yes, Mécanique yes. in 1924, right. yes. collaboration with Man Ray, yes. concatenations of noises and sounds right. and actually sirens. We just had one going past outside yeah. uh, at the same time. Yes. You know, very much this, this, the, the atmosphere of, kind of, of, of post-Dada uh, that he was experiencing when working with Leger, in, well, studying with Leger, uh, in Paris. Yes, when, it had it, it studied in Paris and also um, Andre Lotte as well. But um, he preferred Leger. He was very impressed with Leger. He saw Leger as a kind of big brutish kind of um, you know kind of man of the people, if you like. And, and, and Leger had done these enormous pictures. This is this is a very large painting, I think. But he had also done mural-sized things, which I think Klein was very very impressed with. He liked this, the kind of socialist aspect of uh, Leger, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also Leger's collaboration, collaborations with architects, uh, such as Le, Le Corbusier. Um, so this is this kind of interesting, almost a cross-disciplinary thing going on in, in Klein, I think, at this time. You know, he's not interested in just in painting, but also in kind of environmental, you know, things of large-scale uh, kind of environmental pieces. Moving from the canvas to the streets. To, to the streets, into, effectively. Yeah. Into, into yeah. the real world, so, um, so to speak. Yeah. And so William, William worked in Leger's studio, mm. and he had to buy the canvases and the paints. <laughs> And he prepped the, painting, the paintings for Leger, and Leger would finish them. But Leger was also um, important in saying, get out, get out of the studio, you know, it's, you know, and he broke a lot of boundaries for William. Anything, you know, anything could go, yeah. was, was what Leger was instilled in William. And so William was kind of imbibing these atmospheres, wasn't he? These kind of these yeah. strategies, these modernist strategies. And, yeah. and so, David, maybe talk a little bit about what, yes. what yes. we're looking at here. Well, uh, we've looked at sort of um, avant-garde painting. Actually, the last one, just briefly, just we might flick back to it, um, it's more kind of abstracted, perhaps, than the, ones, the previous one we looked at. And I think here, uh, we know that he knew Ellsworth Kelly, actually, who was a kind of hard edge abstractionist. Uh, from, you know, New York painter. And uh, I think there's something of 
maybe Kelly or somebody there. It's a bit more uncompromising. You can't really read it very easily, but it's got those very jagged kind of forms that we somehow identify, I think, with, with Klein, and the black and white contrasts, very, very strong things uh, throughout his, his career. But anyway, if we go on, sorry. Yeah, um, so here we're looking at avant-garde photography. And, um, you know, he very clearly absorbed what was going on in, um, in terms of experimental photography uh, in the 1920s and early 1930s. Uh, Man Ray, who's uh, one of his photograms there on the right, is associated, of course, with Dada and with surrealism. Um, uh, and uh, Mahali Naj on the left is associated really with the Bauhaus and with what is sometimes called new vision photography. But what these have in common is that they're both uh, essentially photograms. Photograms actually go back to the very beginnings of photography, but in a sense it was revived uh, in the early 20th century by, by uh, these two artists in particular. And basically what it involves is, is, is simply placing objects on light-sensitive paper and then you know, turning on the enlarger uh, and producing uh, an image. Uh, without a camera, basically. It's kind of cameraless photography. Um, but it's experimental. Um, it's, you know, you can hardly, it's very difficult to read these things. What are the objects? Um, and, you know, this kind of very dynamic contrast of light and dark and the kind of blurry effects that you get there. These are things which I think William Klein would well, have picked up on. You see him pick up picking on. up on it in, in this yeah. way. This, is, this being his particular take on the photogram. Yes. Essentially, not strictly speaking a photogram, but the manipulation of light onto photographic paper, onto a sensitive surface, mm. by means of various apertures, circles, squares, and moving then That's right. uh, these yep. apertures across. It's a, it's a, in some senses, it's a really essential form of photography. I mean, photography is nothing other than light modified by objects, mm -hmm. and this is precisely what we're looking at. Yes, yes. Yes, I think... Um uh, I, I, there was a sequence of these uh, photographs which derived from a, a kind of um, um, a a furniture fixture, if you like, that he had to produce, a kind of room divider with a kind of slattered elements to it, which could be kind of turned around manually, and then he kind of photographed it, photographed it using a slow, ex slow exposure and so on. So I think some of them are to do with that. The, 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 this, these are the slattered ones, I think. Um, you might know better about that. <laughs> Yeah, <coughs> uh, where he used the card. Um. These these were from nineteen um, from the nineteen. When was it? Fifty two. And that's this is how William got into into Vogue, with an exhibition in in in, and he was spotted by Alexander Lieberman. Alexander Lieberman. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of instructive. I mean, here he is really soaking up abstraction and um, mm. the, the the spirit of abstraction the the strategy of abstraction the expressions of the universal rather than the individual that and but but taking it into his own space and uh, and mm. and moving it into uh, yeah, architectural space i mean he ended up mm. producing a number of different kind of covers for domus uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, through uh, these uh, through these through these, these these works in these ways um, I'd be really interested, Marcus, just to, to hear talk a little bit more about how actually some of this abstract work came to light. Um, here we're looking at one of the installation shots from the Tate Modern 
exhibition from 2012-2013. Uh, but it, it reflects back on the relationship between gallerist and artist. Could you just speak a little bit about that uh, story, please? We, we got permission to go to William's studio um, to catalogue a few things, right? And so um, it... William is, is quite private, and so it was a unique situation. So we took along two photographers and lots of lights, and we went into the studio, and we documented everything. And William Klein's assistant was there, and there was the cupboard. And we said, well, what's in the cupboard? And the assistant said, I'm not allowed to look. You know, the assistant had been there for nearly 30 years, right? And they'd never opened the mm -hmm. cupboard in the, in, the, in the studio. And so, being very French, you know, at 12.30, the, stu the studio assistant said, well, I've got to go for lunch, you know, and that's two hours or so. So, as soon as he left, I was like, I just got to look in that cupboard, you know. <laughs> so, we opened the cupboard and we... We photographed everything in the cupboard, and you know we we did it. We had to move quite quickly, so we we were just documenting. We weren't stealing anything. We were just documenting everything, and then William Klein's assistant came back, and his son came in, and they were both horrified. We'd opened the cupboard, and so they called the lawyers, and we were evicted. But basically, we had we had we'd been there a day or two, so we had. We had we had catalogued everything, and then in showing William, we went along to William and said, you know, here's everything in your studio catalogued. You know, massive pile of things, and you know, my assistant said, look what we found, and William said, I never fucking lost them. <laughs> <laughs> They're in that cupboard, and so, you know, William William wasn't keen on releasing a whole lot of images. And it was, there were some, the fashion and light, this particular image. <coughs> um, the backstory to it is that this, these are the last fashion images William took with Vogue before he was fired. Because he made a film um, sending up Vogue and all the people in the fashion industry. So he wasn't keen on sending, on having these images out in, out in there because there was this backstory and he was unhappy with it. I got permission to get one of them printed and I got it specially framed and went back to Paris and showed him the framed, polished up image and he agreed to releasing four of them. And then after four, <coughs> we sold, <coughs> we sold <coughs> those and then he released, he released um, basically all of the images from that fashion shoot. And what is interesting about this work is that it's fashion, it's from the 60s, <coughs> it's from 67, but it also harps back to his, um, his abstract work from from the 50s and so it's combining it's it's not just something out of nowhere it's it's william is still working that that, that the abstract field yeah and very much a, a, an example of 
photographers the likes of which Alexander Lieberman were commissioning for Vogue or Alexei Brodovich for Harper's Bazaar. They were looking for the artists who would bring in kind of the avant-garde ideas to help kind of galvanise what essentially were kind of the, the, the ways that the, the new ideas were coming into um, contemporary culture uh, at the time. And this uh, might be an example of that. I mean, talking about the avant-garde, maybe we could just come back to this, David, you know, just again, just the avant-garde influence on Klein's work, maybe particularly in relation to his kind of photography. I don't know if you want to speak. Yes, well, we're going on to the photography a little bit in, the, in, in a minute. So I think, um, you know, I, as well as things like photograms, uh, you know, one was seeing kind of new, new times types of photography produced by people like Rodchenko and Moholy Naj again. These are, this is a straight photograph, but obviously it's taken from a kind of worm's eye view. Um, so we're looking, you know, up at the, under the chin, if you like, of this uh, pioneer bugler um, in, in, in um, Moscow. Um, again, so it kind of abstracts the image, it defamiliarizes, that was the word that was used very much by these people, the new vision photographers and, and uh, the Soviet photographers, defamiliarization. It throws you out of your normal frame of reference, yeah? Yeah. Into some kind of world which you have to make sense of in some way, yeah? And so I think this is precisely the kind of thing that, that William was broadly interested in, okay? And I'm not saying that's... continue doing. He's, Sorry? he's kept doing that. He's kept that, he kept that shock it, yes, effect. Yes, kind of we, We'll talk about Dada in a minute as well, I guess. But, <laughs> um, this is another... I just wanted to just mention this um, project. And if we go on to the next slide, actually, it'd be better. Um, this was from a, a series of photographs of uh, Dutch barns, um, which were uh, kind of photographed by Klein, um, by William, in about, I think, 1952, and were shown in Vogue. Uh, it was another of the, it was a Vogue spread, and they were published by uh, Alexander Lieberman. Um, and what he's done here is he's given you both the positive and the negative print, as it were, you know, to play around, in, in a sense, with the tonal contrast. Uh, and opt also to produce this very, quite severe uh, sort of modernist um, image, really. If you go back to the previous slide, then there are obvious connections to Mondrian, who was one of the great sort of very severe, if you like, geometric abstractionists of the early 20th century. Um, and of course, as I said, those photographs were actually done, were, were, were taken actually fairly near where Mondrian had lived at one point. So in a sense, these are kind of homage, if you like, to, to Mondrian. So on the one hand, the more universal abstraction uh, mm -hmm. figured here, and then yeah. also, but Klein you know, is also very much about you know, getting <coughs> into the face yeah, of people right. in the streets. We're coming on to yes. more the street photography uh, here. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit just about the kind of the context into which Klein uh, was starting to work? I mean, yeah. Um... Well, uh, we've said that, um, you know, he went to um, New York uh, uh, around uh, 1940... Uh, it was, I'm sorry, he was invited by Alexander Liberman to, to take photographs... Um, or, or he, he kind of persuaded Liberman, I think, to, 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 to carry out this project, and uh, uh, Liberman, uh, Liberman uh, financed it largely. Uh, this was back in, in uh, New York now, and... Uh, uh, Klein went back there um, and, as it were, rediscovered where he'd come from. Um, this is around 1950. Uh, he took these photographs in late 1954, 55. Um, they are um, kind of street photographs. If we go back to the one just, just for a second, just this is one of the most famous, iconic images 
in the book that came out of that 1954-55 project, which is called uh, Life is Good for You and Good for You in New York, which actually came from some kind of ad advertising slogan. All right? It's now, it's been republished, this book, and it's often just called New York, 1954-55, uh, but the full title was Life is Good for You and Good for You in New York. Um, and it's a very, very powerful image. You've got, he's kind of thrusting the camera into the faces of these people. Um, he saw New York as a very tough, hard, kind of anxious, difficult place, and he wanted to get that into the photographs. Um, I've got a short quote about this one. Let me find. I've got one or two choice little quotes, and I wanted to read them out because I think sometimes his words are best. He says, pseudo poster for the American dream, Italian cop, integrated Hispanic and Yiddish mama, African American lady with beret, the melting pot. New York was a cultural melting pot. And, you know, it's, the framing here is fascinating. You know, basically, it's kind of the uh, surface of the photograph is almost divided into four. You know, it's very, very dynamic, very unusual to kind of use that sort of format. And so we're seeing here a new kind of photography, um, which, as I said, was financed effectively by Alexander Liberman to begin with um, and, uh, you know, allowed uh, Klein the freedom, really, to experiment, um, which was what he wanted to do at this point with photography. Yeah, so. we see him, I suppose, coming into... Uh, in, into a, a context, a photographic yeah, context, a... where there were a number of significant photographers working, um, yes, yes, sure. kind of Walker Evans, uh, yeah. Ouija. Uh, maybe we, we shouldn't spend too long kind of looking at these or considering these. No, uh, but it puts them in a context. Per se, but it, but yeah. putting it into the context. Um, yeah. Next slide, please. Yeah. Uh, it's just as one kind of point, I suppose. Actually, Klein writes well about his own photographs. Very the, well. The text that he mm. produces, sometimes very short, very pithy, mm. in the New York book, um, kind of say everything that might need yeah. uh, to, to be said. It's worth saying something about Ouija. Um, this is a photograph, a very famous photograph, the first murder, in which Ouija more or less... Uh, well, basically, uh, Ouija was a very opportunistic photographer who produced photographs for the New York tabloids. Gory, kind of, you know, frightening, you know, some disturbing images, very often of, you know, he's on the scene of murders and things like that. And this is a group of people reacting to a murder which has just taken place, OK? <laughs> and, you know, it's a remarkable picture because they're all, you know, you know, they don't all seem to be reacting to what's in front of them, but, you know, they're all moving and looking in different directions and so on. Um, but I just want to make the point that uh, Ouija produced uh, a book in 1945 called Naked City, which in some ways is a forerunner, I think, for New York. Mm -hmm. uh, I think very important influence, really, on uh, the way um, William Klein um, approached the city. Yeah. Next slide, please. So we're seeing a few more. Uh, this image I want to talk about again in using Klein. I just bought a 28mm wide-angle lens, and looking in the viewfinder, realised immediately it would become my normal lens. Preset, ever ready. I could even shoot without aiming. I waded through packed sidewalks, firing from the hip, actually the chest, only deciphering the next day what I'd done, framed by look, instinct, whatever. I liked what the one-eyed camera could do almost on its own, oblivious of Beaux-Arts composition, tired laws of perspective, the golden mean, all of that. Um, 
Yeah, so just, I suppose another, just another context, I suppose, just before we kind of move on to, uh, again, other kind of aspects of this would be, next slide, please, is uh, the work of Robert Frank yeah. as well, another yeah. context, a comparative context for... Yeah, I, that's interesting in terms of history of photography, because when you think about street photography, which is what we associate Klein with... Uh, he was in a tradition, we talked about Ouija already, but he had one great contemporary who was Robert Frank. And uh, Robert Frank produced a book called The Americans in 1958. Uh, it was actually two years after uh, William Klein's um, New York book had been published. Um, but showing very, very similar interests. Both photographers are interested in uh, kind of, um, you know, tilting the frame of the camera... Uh, you know, ignoring re traditional rules about composition, um, using blur. Uh, here we see Frank use it. We just, in the previous picture, saw uh, Klein using this kind of blur through using sort of a, a, a slow exposure time or, or maybe even kind of slightly jig jiggling the camera. Um, and other blurring techniques as well. I think the next slide, please. Mm. Uh, kind of indicates that. Yeah, um, it's a famous one. Yeah, in terms of kind of darkroom manipulations to yeah. be able to kind of create this, this sense of kind of dynamism, fluidity, yeah. uh, that was very much a kind of a hallmark. The picture's uh, called Candy work. Store, and uh, basically he kind of jiggled the enlarger, right, of the, you know, when he was uh, printing the picture to produce the, the bleeding of the, the uh, black into the white, uh, you know, kind of checkerboard uh, in the background, yeah. And I suppose just one more... Um, one more inheritance of the, uh, of the legacies of, of, of modernism. Uh, next slide, please. Um, the photomontage, the work of Raoul Hausmann, but kind of one sees that also very much kind of yeah. pressing an influence on... It's Dada. I mean, we... we um, I, I think uh, one can't sort of uh, overstate the importance, the general importance of things like Dada and maybe surrealism for Klein. I don't think there's any, there's very often any very obvious kind of visual links. Perhaps a, ty a typographic ones, I'll talk about this in a second. But it's more the attitude of Dada. <laughs> you know, the kind of love of the absurd, the love of contradictions, uh, you know, in modern life. The urgency of, of kind of modern experience and, and, and the kind of conflicting kind of um, images that come at you, uh, you know, in the modern city. These are kind of Legacies of Dada, in a way. And there, you saw in the last thing a Hausmann a photo montage. And you can see here a William Klein photograph from the New York book in which he's, he's fascinated by signage, by signs, by neon signs, things like that, um, by lettering, um, uh, you know, almost in a kind of abstract way. Yeah, it's Klein, the, the graphic artist, the, the but graphic also artist. Klein, the filmmaker. Yeah. Um, these are stills from Broadway by Lights. Marcus, did you want to just speak about that particular film? It's one of his first films. Well, William made this film at the same time. It was in colour. It was... Um, he set it to jazz music. Um, he... It was one of the first colour films. It was early on in colour in color filmmaking. Mm. And he... Um, he was offered... On the back of that was offered jobs in, in L.A., which he turned down. Um, there were so many openings for William. He could have gone in a lot of different directions. Um, and he stuck with Vogue at the time. Yeah. And so this was William's first film. Um, and William 
carried on to make a whole lot of films after that. I mean, we don't really have the time to be able to cover all of that aspect of, of his work. Um, but, you know, here are two posters of, of two of those films. Um, experimental feature, Kiet Vupoli Magoo, which was a, a which satire. Got him, which got him fired from Vogue. Which got him fired from <laughs> Vogue. Uh, yes. We'll come back to that a little bit later, but uh, in one particular context, I think. But also uh, the film that he made um, about Muhammad Ali over a period of years. Um, but, but, you know, and these films led on to other films. I mean, he produced some, I mean, made, I don't know how many kind of features and documentaries. I mean, it's, it's in the dozens. Yeah. Well, William was a, box, William was a boxer in the army, mm. and um, he's very fond of sports. So um, he made films on Bjorn Borg. He's, um, he's friends with the Venus sisters, Venus Williams and um, Serena. Serena. And he, a lot of, you know, he is always asking how, how, what's happening with sport is one of his, he's, he's a big sports player. It's the dynamism, it's mm. competition, it's, it's life, competition, it's, yeah. it's yes. all of that. But yeah. it's, it's fascinating, he was a boxer at one point because, the, you know, his, his, his photographs particularly are like that, you know. They're in your face. They're really face, Really close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I think, well, just in There's terms of... of in, <laughs> there we go. But in, in terms of time, we'll just kind of move on a couple of slides to, to the New York book. We've spoken about it before, but it's particularly in relation to his work as a, as a graphic artist as much as anything else. Again, working mm. with type, typography, experimental. He produced all the visuals for this. It wasn't a designer producing it. It was... Uh, it and was he didn't... Himself. It was a problem to get it published. It, yeah. He couldn't get it published in, in the United States. It was published in France... Um, Edition du Seuil, Chris yeah. Marker, the filmmaker, was the yes. editor there. Yes, absolutely. And what did they say about the book when it was released? It was full bleed, hmm. and they said it was disgusting because they, they, there were no page numbers. <laughs> it was, there was no text. It was just straight in your face. Yeah. And they said, you know, he doesn't respect the viewer because... It wasn't nicely mounted or anything. The printing was very graphic. It was hard on... Um, it was it, very black and white. It was reduced to its, 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 its... The paper was almost like newspaper. And so it was... People were, you know, it, the first people to review the book were saying, you know, this is an insult to the viewer. But it's now one of the most sought-after books in, in photography. If you just go back to the previous slide, just briefly. Not that one, the one before. So that's the original, that's the first um, edition, I think, the Edison du Soy one. Uh, and that one is the, uh, the later one that was actually, it was republished in, I think, 1995 by um, Dewey Lewis. Um, in both instances, of course, he's, he's been involved in the cover design. But I think it's worth saying that his interest in signage which we saw you know, in relation to the film as well, is a, often seen as a kind of forerunner of pop art, really. You know, in the, in the early 1960s, um, the sort of avant-garde, in a sense, in in, 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 sorry, in America, turns its attention to popular signage, commodity culture, and things like that. And you can see him actually, you know, a, a precursor in many ways of that attitude. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Absolutely. Uh, one critic at the time described this kind of photograph as scrofulous. Uh, you know, yeah. people didn't know what oh, to well, make so of it. There hadn't been many, uh, many, many kind of approaches that were so anti-technique, that were so prepared to, to kind of disdain it in, in that way. This is full of signage, you know, pro proto-pop. As a, as a personal note, this, this book, when I started uh, an apprenticeship as a photographic printer with Max and Nitin Vadukal, the fashion photographers, way back when, this was the book in the darkroom that was like, now print like this and, and it'll be okay. It took a little while, but, but these sorts of qualities uh, that were there in the book, which were, which were really quite shocking um, at the time, but then have become uh, a, a, a benchmark of, of, of a certain way of engaging uh, with, with the world. I mean, there's all sorts of incredibly iconic images. Roland Barthes in, in, in <laughs> yes. Camera Lucida yes. talks about this to try and illustrate his point of, of the punctum, and then Klein responds and says, you know, and, and counters Barthes. I mean, let's not get into the photo yeah. theory. But, but uh, it's here. the teeth, it's the teeth. But it's the Bart. teeth, the carious teeth. It's, it's, not, a, the, it's not the gun, it's, it's going to be the teeth. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, I mean, that's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, this, it's the way in which, I suppose, Klein kind of leeches into kind of photo history and photo theory. Mm -hmm. uh, he, was, he was there producing these images that subsequently um, academics have poured over uh, and, uh, and argued mm -hmm. about. Um, so this, this, is, this is one of his own favourites, this photograph. Um, I wanted to read... I'm sorry, I've got some quote, another quote from him which I like, mm -hmm. you know, and I like to read out. Um, these were uh, my first real photo photographs. I had neither training nor complexes. By necessity and choice, I decided that anything would have to go. A technique of no taboos, as our title. Blur, grain, contrast, cockeyed framing, accidents, whatever happens. As for content, pseudo-ethnography, parody, dada. There hadn't been many precedents. I mean, there'd been some experimentation yeah. in 1911-12 by the Italian um, yes. futurists. Yeah. There'd been Alexei Brodovich's book, Ballet, mm. uh, in published in 1945, where he wasn't a photographer, therefore there were these technical faults. But it really was uh, kind of, it was, it was new. I mean, we might look at an image now and be able to find all sorts of legacies yeah. of it, but at the time it was... Let me do, he says about this, end of the day, dance. Somewhere in Brooklyn... The light was going. I used a slow shutter speed, 1 15th or 1 8th of a second. So that's how you get the blur, right? I doubt whether I knew what I'd be getting. It was only the day after that I discovered what the blur would contribute. Accident, error, look. So, the blur. And it's also there at the left of that photograph. It becomes the kind of signature aspect of his, his photographs. Um, of course, it's completely contrary to, uh, you know, <laughs> to what classic photography was supposed to be about, what, what photography was supposed to be about. This one's also interesting because, you know, the guy, the, the guy on the right, I think, is trying to sort of avoid the photographer, trying to get out of the way sort of thing. But Klein has still sort of kept him in the, the, image, the picture, you know, so it's very interesting. I haven't really got a lot to say except the, 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 the composition is fascinating. It's also a very haunting, very haunting photograph, I think, this one. One of these, you know, double-page bleed, you know, spread, double-page spread things. Really heavily inked photogravure yeah. yeah. production. Yeah. yeah. And again, this notion of, of the tabloid, of, yeah. of the media <laughs> context yeah. coming right into um, the, the, the book as well. Right. So from the gunman on the front pages of uh, the newspapers to... Um, next slide, please. Oh, well. 
This is the classic one, which I think he hates <laughs> now, in a way, because it's been reproduced everywhere, including my last book, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, it's an iconic photograph of uh, a boy full of malice, uh, appearing to point a gun at the uh, camera. And in a sense, he's, he's simply reflecting what, what Klein's doing to him, you might say. In, in, uh, Klein was pointing his camera right at the boy. But, uh, you know, it's very famous because although the boy seems to be full of malice, uh, we'll show you a, a, something later on to prove that, in fact, it was just the whole thing was a, a setup, a joke. Um, Klein had basically asked the boy to do this, you know. It's, it's, uh, we're not really looking at a, uh, <laughs> a kind of horrible incident in, in New York at all. No. Um, there's another boy with a gun. Obviously, you know, very, very potent images these days when, uh, you know, kind of gun incidents and so on, and the whole issue of guns is so important for modern-day America. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he proceeded to produce a series of other books around other cities, Rome, Moscow, Tokyo, um, between 1958-1962. Um, yeah. There are just a few images here from one of those books, from the, from the Moscow mm -hmm. um, book... Uh, here, uh, this again, a very kind of famous image. It says something about the personality of the photographer. He's not trying to hide. He's not trying to kind of stealthily take pictures on the slide. He's there directly engaging with uh, the, the, the subjects. Um, Marcus, in terms of kind of when he went back to Moscow, in, for an exhibition in 2007, I think there's a story. <clears throat> well, William went back to Moscow to, and he, he decided he wanted to go back to the subway stations to photograph just to pass time, passage of time and things. So William had a, had a translator and a security guard and they went down onto the subway station and um, after an hour or so they got arrested and they got taken and, the, and the, the translator said, look to the police, do you know who this is? This is... Um, he's got an exhibition in Moscow. The queues are two hours long to get into the exhibition. This is William Klein. And the policeman said, I wear his underwear. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, you don't. <laughs> so this is an image from the, from the Rome book. And I suppose it's just a segue through to coming back to mm. Klein as a fashion photographer, as mm. someone who, I, mean, I think often fashion photography can be kind of denigrated as if somehow it's not kind of art photography. And yet to, to be a fashion photographer and to be able to operate at that level, at that degree of, uh, of, of the pace at which one needs to continually be kind of coming up with kind of new ideas and, 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 uh, and you know, regularly shooting, you know, this is an image here also in Rome, Spanish Steps it's called, um, and I suppose an example of how William could work in the studio, but he could equally would want to take models out into the world, and yeah. it was, again, that sense of, of dynamism, uh, of energy, and of, of, of actuality. Well, Frank, Frank Horvat is the... William had never really taken any photographs, and Frank Horvat is the first sort of photographer who did um, fashion on the street and so William knew Frank and Frank was, William went to Frank and said well what advice can you give me and Frank said well get a telephoto lens and then be a long way away and then you can capture a mood and things so this is mm -hmm. as a result of the interaction with Frank Horvat. 
just another example of actually using that telephoto lens and uh, creating staged encounters that you can't quite work out what, what actually happened, what's, what's staged. Um, but yeah, working, but not just only working with a wide-angle lens, but also working kind of with, with other, other, ways as, uh, other ways as well. Um, this image here, which might not appear to be transgressive to our eyes today, mm -hmm. perhaps, I mean, Marcus, worth talking about, I mean, actually at the time, these images of the models smoking without gloves? Yeah, really? this was, this was um, the cover of Vogue, and it was in the 50s. It was at a time women wore gloves and they smoked with cigarette holders. And so this is without gloves, without cigarette holders. Mm -hmm. It was considered almost like having a prostitute on the cover of Vogue. It was, it was very confrontational. It, you know, it, it sort of it sort of had crossed a barrier in a way at the time. And he was always prepared. He was looking, he was look, looking for the barrier in order to transgress it. Mm. I would almost say that the most transgressive thing about this image today is not so much the fact of the smoking, the cigarette, and the lack of gloves, and the lack of cigarette holder, but it's the fact that the model's forehead hasn't been retouched. You know, that, that again is that little injection of, of the real into uh, the space of the image, uh, which I think still uh, holds today. But once he's throughout his fashion photography, there's always this sense of inventiveness, of looking to kind of create confusing images. These images here, kind of working with mirrors uh, out there in, on location. Um, kind of splintering images, creating... I mean, he was being, you know, reflecting the op art uh, of the period. These mm, final yeah. two images here, or these two images here, from uh, the Kiet Vu Polymagu, the film uh, about uh, the kind of the satire, I suppose, uh, of uh, the, the fashion industry, with caricatures of Diane of Reland mentioned before. But what I think is really interesting, if you haven't seen the film Kiet Vu Polymagu, it's worth watching because for all of the kind of satirical, kind of tongue-in-cheek, ironic approach, actually, as a filmmaker, he looks out for... Polly, who is kind of the model, the protagonist of the film, and, and she's a fragile character, but he's clearly rooting for her. He's clearly, you know, there's care, in a sense, in that film for that character, even if the rest is there to be uh, lampooned. Mm. It's also worth saying that, I mean, just in, in the cult in wider cultural context, I think, you know, that, that film, he picks up on uh, the, the new wave um, directors, um, he, um, Chris Marker, we talked about earlier, uh, being something of an influence, um, but also uh, Jean-Luc Godard, um, um, Fellini, you know, there's a, uh, not, he's not really New Wave, but a French New Wave director, but also Fellini. A whole range of different sources come in as well. So he's, he's quite, he's very significant in the history of filmmaking, just as he is in the history of photography, you know. I mean, it's important that we see this multidimensional William Klein, you know. I think that's coming across quite strongly today. He's a performer as well, of course. In La Jeté, yeah. in Chris Marker's La Jeté, yeah, right. he appears as, uh, he and his wife Jeanne appear as um, emissaries from the future. Uh, and uh, it's, again, well worth, uh, well worth watching. Um, I suppose just trying to draw some of these threads together, um, David, you spoke about just yeah. the everything that William is. He's ne mm. he, he can't be kept in one particular in one particular box or one mm. particular kind of genre. Um, and I suppose there's something about this this series here, the Painted Contact series, uh, that that is a synthesis of the photographer, the artist, the 
the, the, the filmmaker. The very idea that a contact sheet for a photographer, certainly in relation to analogue photography, is you can see how a photographer is thinking, and, and William has written and spoken about that. Um, you, know, you, can, you can tell that moment where the photograph happens. The image before is not a photograph. The image afterwards is not a photograph, until the chinograph pencil and then latterly uh, the, uh, the enamel paint identifies that moment where it all comes uh, yeah. together. So this series is really rather totemic, isn't it? Of it is. Uh, and just to briefly go back to an earlier point, you know, obviously the photograph at the top is this iconic photograph, Gun One, I think it's called. Um, and you can see uh, underneath, on the left, the, uh, I think the frame that came immediately after that, when you see the boy um, smiling, you know, it was, the whole thing was a joke, you know, effectively it was a setup. Yeah. Um, but of course, we never saw that <laughs> uh, before. Yeah, yeah. Before he, sh he actually produced these painted contacts. Marcus, could you just say a little bit more about about the genesis of the painted contacts, or kind of how you've particularly been kind of working with William with this series? Well, uh, <clears throat> we haven't we haven't really worked with William. I mean, with William, these are William's ideas. He refused to have anyone paint the painted contacts. Um, I tried to get him an assistant to help paint because William's quite old and he, he can't move much. He's, this is William's favourite body of work. It's, it includes everything about William, the films, the graphics, the, the fashion, the, the, the straight photography. And <clears throat> William, um, William's... This, is, this embodies everything about William. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, because for me, it goes, it goes back to Leger and things like that. You know, the colour, the, these are the red, the primary colours, reds, yellows, blues. You know, in the early Leger paintings, you get those kind of colour overlays and things. The energy, the dynamism, the, energy the, as well, the, the, you know, the graphic. You can see him going back here to his kind of earlier painting, which is fascinating, as yeah. well as the photography. <clears throat> um, David, I mean, could you just say something maybe about kind of Klein's legacy. I mean, we could be spending another hour talking about that, but just in general, in terms of you know, how we might kind of view him, the perspective today. Well, I, th I think um, for me, I mean, you know, he's very important in street photography. Any you know, history of street photography is going to have a whole chapter, really, on William Klein. Um, that's the case of the classic one by um, uh, John Mayer... Mayer um, what's his name? I've forgotten his name. Mayer... So it doesn't matter. Uh, Joel Merovitz. Yeah, Merovitz, that's right. His, his book on street photography has a whole chapter on William Klein. He sees him as that important. Um, but I think uh, Klein also had a great influence on subsequent photographers, and uh, probably mainly I would pick out um, Gary Winogrand, a really important 1960s American photographer who um, you know, has a very, very similar kind of um, offbeat kind of attitude, um, you know, kind of shooting off rolls and rolls and rolls of film, you know, kind of just pointing it at people almost randomly in the streets. That kind of attitude is sort of expanded, really, in Gary Winogrand's work. So he's, he's the main figure, for me, anyway, uh, who uh, continues the legacy. But one final thing I would say is that what's very interesting today is to see how, you know, it would be rather narrow, possibly, just to think of him in terms of the history of photography. And that, you know, it'll be very interesting to see how the, the show in New York, which is on currently, I believe, um, you know, whether it, it contributes to a reassessment of, of, of Klein, 
you know, which is not just confined, in fact, to photographic history, but has a slightly broader kind of... Mm. And Marcus, you had an interaction even at Masterpiece, didn't you, with someone? Well, I mean, a lot of people know William for different sections of his work. So I had, yes. I had someone talking to me about... Um, they picked up a postcard on the stand and it was a fashion image and they said, is this William Klein? Because mm. I lecture on William on film and I use a, f a film shot in Africa of the ANC convention and did he really do fashion? You know, and it's like people know William Klein for lots of different things. And so, you know, you can know William Klein for his his films with the 1968 uprising, student uprising in Paris. You know, there's so many things that you can know William for. Also for being quite a character as well. Yeah. Do you have a favourite repeatable anecdote? Yes. Well, there's... Um, when we were doing the... When we were getting together for the Tate Modern exhibition, um, William was invited to look at was invited to London to look at the rooms in Tate Modern which were going to be used for his exhibition. And I was with William and we were going through the rooms and with all the curators and it was a, it was a, it was a group of about five, eight of us that were going through. And there was an exhibition by Gabriel Orozco on at the time and William just didn't like Orozco's work. And we went through this room and there was a shoebox, empty shoebox on the floor, and they had the duty manager with a young student, and the duty manager was telling the student off for moving the shoebox with his foot. And he moved it a centimetre or so, and, this, and the duty manager was saying, this costs $68,000, it's property of the Met in New York, and um, a murmur in New York, and it's, you know, and we, we heard this from a way away, and William, you could see, he walked, you know, I was walking with him, really? and he walked up to, to sort of confront the duty manager, and then you could see William's thought process change, right, when he was going to confront the duty manager, and he lifted his foot back slowly, and he kicked the shoebox right across the room. And the duty manager couldn't breathe because he'd been telling this kid off for moving at a centimetre with his foot. Yeah. And there the shoebox had been right across the gallery, hit the wall sort of thing. And, and I was like, we, we, I need to have that on film. And I also want to have the, um, the, the report on the situation because... It's a really kind of interventionist thing. And the next day I got a call from the Tate Modern to say not to worry, they'd hash the whole thing up. <laughs> well, it's out now, uh, yeah. being live cast uh, as we speak. Um, so William was protecting the kid. He protects the underdog, yeah. Yeah. you know. William also, when we were in, in Paris once, and William was at a, we were doing a book signing, and William was signing a whole lot of books. And some guy brought along a whole lot of records, right, with images that, of Williams on the covers of the albums. And I was, like, horrified. I was like, William, you can't sign these. You know, there's just a pile of them. And he said, look, this is all he's got. You know, this guy doesn't have much. And so William signed away, you know, 
and the, the guy who owned the albums was kind of looking away. It took five minutes or so, you know, and signing away each mm -hmm. one. And then up came an image from... Um, from... Um, Avedon. Avedon. Yeah. And, and without looking up or anything... William just signed Richard Avedon <laughs> across the... And, you know, it was like back in the pile. And he's, he's very sharp, you know. And it's, it's, it's... He can be a very kind person, but he can also be really in your face. So if you, if you don't... If, if, you, if you kind of... If you aren't on the ball, or he feels like he's got a game to play with you, He'll either insult you to see if you can come back with something. And, you know, a lot of times people are kind of flawed by it. But he's, he's looking for a rise, you know. Does anyone in the audience have experience of William Klein directly? I mean, has anyone, has anyone got any anecdotes that uh, you'd be able to share? <laughs> or, indeed, if no anecdotes and any questions. We've still got a, um, a few minutes, I think, for any questions. The Met Museum has stopped identifying artists by nationality. Does Mr. Klein identify as French, as both? He, he travels on an American passport, but he really likes... He, he, he's very famous in France, and he loves it, because any, you take him anywhere out on the street and people come up and push a camera in his face and, and photograph him. I'm always like, not so close, but William, you know, he, he likes it, you know, he likes the attention. Mm. So he has strong roots to the United States. He reads the New Yorker magazine cover to cover. He's really well informed. He won't go back to the States. He's not going to, you know, his Paris is home. But in, in Paris, he's known as an American photographer, you know, an American artist. But in the States, he's most probably known as, as being a simulated French. Anyone else with a question? Gentleman at the back there. I think it'd be just as well to get it on, to get it on the microphone. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I didn't know that about the Met. Um, it showed a lovely photograph of the number 19 bus. Um, could you tell us about when that occasion that he came to Britain to take that photograph? Yeah. It's going to Islington, by the way. Yeah. Oh, I'm so, so, so a bit shocked. That was... Um, William came <coughs> to London, I think it was, it was with Vogue, and he was... Uh, he had a great time in London. It was, it was, um, he stayed at, 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 I think it was, um, he stayed in London for about a month. Oh, yeah. And he really enjoyed afternoon teas. Um, <laughs> and, and so w William to this day is, you know, when you visit him in the afternoon has a massive pot of tea. And, you know, tea and cakes is, is like, is, is his favourite thing. 
Thanks. Anna, just interesting, because he described the photograph you showed of the four people in New York from the New York magazine. He describes a Yiddish mama, but no one would ever use that expression anymore. No, probably know what it meant. That's well, really interesting that you said that at the time. Um, thank you. So the graphics in this, um, this, William did a film where he put posters around Paris um, and it was just garbled letters. And that, that, you know, the, the, it was also like filmed on a bus going through Paris. You kind of see the, the posters, you can't understand. And it's also the whole theme of the film is not really understanding. And so letters, William likes letters and he likes no. mucking them around. So this is, um, this brings together the graphics and the, the, his, his love of letters. Yeah. Any other questions? Can, can you say something more about his firing? Did Diana Breland fire him? Yes. I mean, the film was... He really set up the... the he really did a, a spoof on, on her and the film. And uh, he, he... It was... It, William was very upset about being fired. He just didn't realise how much he had upset the whole fashion industry because he'd taken, he'd taken the mickey. In the film, he had got... I mean, he was taking fashion to extreme, he felt. So he got sheets of metal and cut, cut them out, right, and made them... and then bent them round, and those were the dresses. The, the metal cut into the actresses, and in the film they're bleeding. It's, it's, it's real blood, you know. And there was William saying, and then they go on to the catwalk, and it's, it's these women in these sheets of metal. And Diane Friedlander is saying, oh, it's magnifique, you know. And, <clears throat> I, you know, the next season, they were using metal dresses you know, in circles, as, uh, you know, if William was thinking they'll never use metal, you know, and, and then the next... Packer band they did, they, they <laughs> took the, you know, so, you know, William, William had a whole love-hate relationship with fashion. His wife, um, Jeannie, was incredibly good-looking. She was a... She was used as a model. She didn't like modelling, but she modelled when they didn't have much cash. And so she paid, you know, when they were <clears throat> newly wed, they didn't have much money. She did modelling assignments to bring in cash. And so there was a, a love-hate relationship with fashion. Yeah. So we are up to time. If there are any final questions, we could take one more. But otherwise, it just remains for me to say thank you very much, David. Thank you very much, Marcus. Thank you, thank you. very much for coming along this afternoon. And uh, I'm back. <laughs>